This is Neon Cauldron with Elise Osborne. Welcome to the show. This is Elise Osborne, your host as usual. Um, in fact, you should be highly suspicious if someone else is hosting Neon Cauldron. Okay, so this episode is dedicated to complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, this is relevant, especially in my own story of why I'm interested in the tarot, in magic, in witchcraft, and all of different people's paths to find their soul in this alienating and strange, terrible world we live in. So if you are listening and you might have post-traumatic stress disorder or um, some other mental illness is what I like to call it, and the reason why is because um, in my particular uh, experience as learning magic and healing and pathways, of course there's a correlation to finding myself in dark circumstances that can be extremely fracturing to the mind and soul. So my attraction to seeing what could not be seen, it comes from a place of really not knowing and being extremely afraid and um, finding how to navigate through that by looking for signs and symbols and how to trust myself in an untrustworthy universe. Um, and then again, how to trust the universe again. So um, of course, the second sight and the concept of healing is really meaningless without the shadow of not being able to see what's going on, um, being confused, and also uh, healing. Um, the unspoken part of that is the need for it, right? So here is an episode of Neon Cauldron, which is extra long, where we addressed um, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder and our different methods of healing through it. Um, <laughs> about halfway through this very long episode, um, the audio gets divided and overlaps, which sometimes happens on this show. And um, I promise I will correct that in the future. Um, this mostly happens when I'm doing calls um, because so many of my interviews are cross country. We do it by phone and sometimes the audio comes in in this sort of like split where it overlaps. But good news, it's a simulated panic attack, which is on par with the theme of the episode. So please enjoy. And I'm so happy to introduce my dear friend. Hello? Jasmine. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Neil and Cauldron. Um, this is the show, Neon Cauldron, where we talk about witches and witchcraft and basically things and practices that alter and shift our consciousness and our worldviews and the way that we navigate through the unseen planes. So Jasmine Lim is an amazing um, activist, artist, yoga instructor, and all-around incredible person, and um, she's a dear friend of mine who shares a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Is it a neurosis? I don't know the category. But <laughs> we, we share a thing called CPTSD, which is a, um, it's, it's a added, it's like PTSD plus. And it's a term that you told me about, Jasmine. So how would you describe um, CPTSD to someone who doesn't, uh, isn't familiar with it. 
Yeah. Um, PTSD is very similar to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's a little different or differentiated from regular PTSD because the complex part means that every experience that you had in your very early formative years, so throughout childhood and maybe into adulthood, were maybe traumatizing, uh, consistently, regularly stressful, violent even, Um, whereas regular PTSD doesn't mean that you didn't experience some of those things early on, but I guess it assumes that you had relative stability growing up and had good enough parenting um, so that when you did have all those traumatic experiences, you had already sort of formed, for the most part, your conception of the world and the way that you related to the world was that it was maybe mixed, but that it was generally a safe place to be. But if you have complex PTSD, it usually means that the only thing you really know is uh, violent experience after violent experience or being violated and abused. And so it's really you don't have safety in your nervous system. So your nervous system probably is extra jumpy or um, you can be hypervigilant so that you can protect yourself really quickly and react really fast, which means that your nervous system is usually not relaxed. And it's important for a nervous system to be able to have its whole range Right, so to be able to be activated and respond quickly, have adrenaline and cortisol, but then also to be able to wind down and relax, um, so that you know you can have like more balance um, in the body. Totally. Yeah, and I, I feel like there's. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and and also it's. Um, I would also say to the listeners that there's a lot of different types of stories that could create. Um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So, um, so the reality of the trauma of childhood's fucked up, right? But, um, but this is what we're talking about mostly is the post-trauma. So the the initial experience is its own kind of terror, but then going through your life expecting in in the back of your your feelings, you know, your feeling body is like waiting for someone to maybe come physically attack you or whatever that um basis that that baseline experience could be is kind of how you expect things to keep going um which can really cloud the mind and i think it kind of rearranges our world views basically and um there's there's a few different things that can happen or circumstances that uh, qualify as abuse. Um, There's also, I think, important to mention the consistency of your experiences, um, whether um, you had, like, times where they were like, oh, this isn't a nightmare, you know, because for me, I I moved around a lot, and sometimes I had different people taking care of me or different people in my environment that created a better environment. but that was like completely inconsistent and also just like the inconsistency of having all these different spaces all the time, like constantly being put into different spaces 
Um, mm-hmm. But but uh, I feel like you, you I want to say one more thing about what you just were talking about, which is having a hard time learning how to self-soothe. And um, I think not to say everyone with CPTSD uh, has addiction issues, but I, I'd say that um, part of having CPTSD is maybe not really understanding what is going on with you and like trying to self-medicate or trying to figure out how to calm the storm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people might be interested in like substance abuse or, or something like that without even realizing it. Cause it's like, what do you do to like knock yourself down? So you're not feeling so intense all the time. Right. Yeah. I definitely think that addiction is a really common thing that people with CPSD experience. Yeah, because you're trying to medicate. You're trying to, sometimes there's no way for you to calm down without, you know, trying to take some type of substance. Um, Sometimes, I bet, I I think for a lot of people, life is really overwhelming. And then if you have CPTSD, you might be so activated all the time that that there's like no way possible for you to calm down. And if you don't have access to any kind of, I guess, healthcare or mental healthcare, then you would probably be more susceptible to addictive or addiction. Um, I know that like I have experienced that a lot in the past, especially in my twenties. And then even now there are ways that I, um, when I'm overwhelmed, which is often that I do things to try to calm myself down so maybe I watch a lot of TV or I just space out and completely disassociate for, you know, the entire day. Yeah, I love spacing out too. Or maybe maybe I love it. I don't know. Like, I do it. Um, I think, like, going inward is a, is a safe space, you know? Like, you're constantly looking for a little cave that's protected. And, you know, especially depending on what kind of trauma has been, like, you know, usually it's a range of different, you know, it's a whole smorgasbord of different fun, terrible things. And you might react differently. Like um, for me, my response to sexual trauma was to completely disassociate. Like, so I only, um, I remember a little bit of this or that when something irregular happened that like shook me out of my, self-induced coma or whatever you know so Mm -hmm. um but uh, (laughs) sorry um I don't know it's there's so many things uh to address in this like addiction or like looking for that soothing that it can either put you in a space where you feel lost at sea or you have to figure out how to go inward in a way that's still connected and like figure out how to navigate, you know, and how to like show up in the world and in a better, fuller self, which is really perplexing for probably everyone. But it's like extra perplexing because you also feel like such a weirdo and that you won't be really accepted. And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. So I also want to say about um, the addiction stuff, there's no medication really for CPTSD. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not like, you know, being bipolar and then you can have pills that would help regulate your levels or, you know, there's no like official drug connection to, um, 
see PTSD, it's you really have to create your own unique spirit walk through the world. Um, and I feel like that um, has opened a lot of doors for me and I know has also opened a lot of doors for you. And um, I think that it can actually give you an opportunity to become a very good healer because you understand what it's like beyond um, the hedge, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not any specific drug that is geared towards CPTSD, but a lot of people with PTSD or CPTSD have anxiety disorders and depression and um, a bunch of other um, disorders, but it's kind of good that there's not like a specific drug that people suggest to medicate people with PTSD because like you just said, um, it's given us the opportunity to kind of find our own way and find ways to heal that maybe aren't as like, you know, like aren't putting a bandaid. Like we actually want to understand why we have, um, PTSD and where it comes from and how we can kind of connect with other people who have it and realize that it's not an isolated, unique thing. It's actually really common. Um, and I think we're both invested in addressing a lot of the stigma and figuring out ways to be, to talk more openly about it. Cause when you feel a lot of, I mean, I know for a long time I felt very ashamed and embarrassed and complicit in the sexual abuse in the, you know, that you were just uh, relationship I had with what? Say it again? That you were just a child, you know, and I think that's a part of it too, is that you feel all this responsibility and no control when you're going through that kind of abuse, which is an added. You can't make sense of what's happening to you. And the only thing that you can really try to control are your own actions. So I think a lot of kids end up assuming that it has to have something to do with them. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense to them. Why would an adult abuse a kid? You know, the kid doesn't deserve it at all. So if you're a kid and you're trying to wrap your head around that, you're going to assign blame to yourself. You know, for me personally, I figured it was because there was something innately wrong with me and that I deserved and I, I was disgusting and I was also like a maybe perverted or, you know, that there was just something innately wrong with me um, because I couldn't really understand why, what reason would my dad have to do that? And obviously like sexuality when you're eight years old is, you know, for a lot of kids, it's just completely abstract and confusing, let alone, like, if an adult is putting um, putting you in a situation and violating you um, without your consent. It just, yeah, for me, it was too much to wrap my head around. So I just, like you said earlier, disassociated and um, kind of didn't feel anything. And then I knew something was wrong and off, but... Um, it's just something that it was just something that happened, and I kind of created this weird distance from it, as if it wasn't even happening to me. No, completely. But it still left an imprint. Yeah, I I think it's yeah. taken me. Um, when I was a teenager, and I left uh, my mother and stepfather's home, which was very abusive. 
I started going to therapy and I like mm-hmm. started connecting dots like and I got really intense about it I was just like this is happening to a lot of gals like everyone's scared I'm not scared and I would make like comics and paintings and it was like a weird me too movement one woman army as like a 17 year old like I would I would post comics around my school trying to explain you know I was just like yep this is happening don't be afraid like you got to speak up like I was so um Jasmine I was real bugged up about like act, being an <laughs> activist because uh-huh. you're, you're right like a lot you do assume that it's you, you you do feel very alone and alienated and when I was younger I created a really strong um, connection not through individual therapy as much as group therapy and hearing other people's stories and hearing their position on it which I related not maybe to the specifics of their stories because there was some girls in there that had horrific like impossibly horrific things, uh, you know, in, including like incest pregnancies where their baby died and they didn't, oh my God. you know, they had to go to the hospital when they were, you know, in labor because they were so disassociated from their own bodies and they didn't know they were pregnant until they they had a, you know, gave birth to a, a, a dead baby, like that kind of stuff where you're just like, oh my fucking oh my God. God, like I had it good, like. But that's another thing. It's not. It's not a comparison of like no. who's had the worst time. It's not a contest. But um, the way that it affects you does make you feel extremely alienated. And like, who would relate? Who would love me? Who would not be stressed out and annoyed to hear these stories? Like, how much is too much when we come to share or heal? So I think that it's extra important to find community of people that you could work through that with in in a way that has safe boundaries for everyone involved. Um, mm-hmm. But that's sort of a tangent and just like the, the, the disassociative qualities that you're talking about. Like I remember when I was a kid having like really intense out of body experiences. Um, and I've, I've like, you know, I've listened and watched, videos and audiobooks and lectures or therapists who try to break it down in this way that just sounds very like anti-magic just purely psychological but um I would say that me trying to escape my body my soul like leaving my body and floating up to the roof of the bedroom and looking back and being like nope and then just keep going like I think to me that was an extremely spiritual experience that um, was very real, and I think that it really, like, heightened an ability that um, wouldn't have happened if I wasn't so horrified, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, hold on a second. Sorry, Benji's here. Um, are you able to edit this out? <laughs> it's okay. Hi, Benji. Um, hi. hi. Can you grab your stuff so that I can... Yeah, I'm Okay. Thank you. So about that. Okay. So I'm just saying, like, um, CPTSD for me has opened a lot of magic doorways. Um, you know, I think the mind creates portals to escape when you're in your in the most dire experiences. Um, mm-hmm. 
and um for me like i I've, I've um expanded on that as an adult and you know, I'm really into tarot and magic and whatever um in its different incarnations but I think you know as a kid when something went wrong and I was really scared as like a little kid and basically it felt like I was on a sinking ship and all the adults are like angry and violent and throwing things and you might get like thrown down a flight of stairs or this or that and you're like what is even happening you know it feels like Armageddon all the time and I remember like looking out the window and saying a prayer that if I could see one little bird then very Forrest Gump that, that it would like show me a sign that I was going to be okay and then just like a huge or a little a flock of little birds would co- would go by like swooping right under the house under my window right then mm-hmm. so it was like to me it opened this really intense dia- dialogue with a divine connection you know that that mm-hmm. was like a higher power you know that to me made me feel safe no matter what it looked like around me and in the same yeah. channel I would use that extrasensory hypervigilance to sort of anticipate needs. So yeah, like if my mom was in a certain mood or if she just like moved her head a certain way, then I would know that she was entering a train of thought that would lead to violent or severe action. So I would immediately be like, okay, she needs something right now. Like I have to like switch this right now. So like, what can I offer her right now to make it okay? And yeah, um, you became really attuned to all, everything that, like things that were precursors to some something violent happening, or you became like really extra sensitive. You were able to sense any little cue that could, you know, lead to something happening. Yeah, right? which is um, which is something that I used for survival, and then. It became um, tools that I can use to help other people with things, sure. But it also doesn't totally turn off. And it doesn't matter how I feel or if I feel more stressed out or intense than it feels like the outer pressure of, let's say, like, my neighbors yelling at each other or, you know, like all the things that are going on around me, I'm like, I'm not safe. This is going to be fucked up. And, um, I literally can't calm myself down, which, um, yeah, because it sounds like you don't have, because you're always vigilant, you're always paying attention to all of the cues around you that you, you can't really turn it off, turn the volume down. And in a way, like to, in order to relax, you have to be able to, tune certain things out in the environment, you know, so that you're not constantly overstimulated. And it just means like, on the one hand, you're really porous. So that's also a good thing when you're trying to have a exchange with somebody or connect with somebody, you can really pick up on what their experience is and you can relate to a lot of that. Um, but at the same time, it has its, ne- its you know, downside which is that means that you can't actually create like a safe sort of boundary between yourself and your environment. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that is um, theoretically it, but there's also, 
it's not the whole story because I mean I've learned yeah. ways to cope and I have things that I could focus my energy in to give me grounding and insight and to me like connecting with spirit world is very grounding in human world and then just uh, checking in and being accountable for decisions and like doing my best to make my environment safe and then checking in with spirit realm as much as possible is like the thing that has always made me feel stable-ish, you know, or like the most grounded I could possibly be. And then for you, it's been, um, not to say that you're not connected to spirit realm, I, I don't mean that at all, but you are also um, really talented in understanding uh, how to ground your body and how to connect in with your body in a way that is like very soothing and I would love if you could talk more about how yoga and like meditation and um, connecting with your body has helped you learn tools for grounding. Okay. Um, well, I kind of see that as really spiritual too, because it's connecting with our nature. So connecting with the body makes me sort of feel like I'm connecting with my animal nature you know, feeling like all the different sensations throughout the body and um, connecting with sensory information, like, you know, touch, smell, all the other, all the other ones. Um, but some tools would be, well, the way I see yoga is <clears throat> it means to yoke. The word yoga in Sanskrit means to yoke which is defined a lot as union. So it's connecting your breath with movement or connecting your mind with your body, sort of dropping your curiosity or your awareness inside of your body, which when you have any kind of trauma that makes you step outside of your body for safety reasons so that you don't, you know, get too overwhelmed, um, it's kind of like a way for you to get reintroduced with, yourself, your physical self, um, which can be really empowering, you know, because if you're sort of checked out and not in your body, then it's hard for you to participate in the world the way that maybe you'd like to. And for me, that's really spiritual because I like to think of spirituality um, not really, like there's not really one spirituality that I subscribe to. I really get inspired by a lot of different faiths. But I definitely think nature and, you know, thinking about the universe and um, the animal world and the ecosystem, those things to me are really spiritual. Um, but there's something I wanted to mention also about sort of connecting to um, humans, connecting to each other as a species. I think like we were talking a little bit earlier about how we spend a lot of time trying to soothe ourselves and we are focused on maybe trying to find like a little safety um, in our, like alone or creating like a little um, disassociating kind of makes you feel like you're just trying to find a little comfort by yourself. But um, when, when I'm talking to other people who experience similar things or who even like, they don't have to even have any experiences that resemble mine, but who just are curious and we're just connecting about, you know, our various um, life experience. 
with traumas. Um, I think that's when I feel like we can create more of like open conversation and maybe come up with collective solutions um, and destigmatize abuse, sexual abuse especially. Well, I do do understand what you're saying. I think that I don't want anyone to misinterpret our intention because we, there should be a stigma around the assault of children and people, but I understand what you're saying around uh, the consciousness of, you know, being a young girl or a woman it's a, or, or, or a man or whoever being assaulted um, and feeling so afraid of being marked by it. And also, honestly, when you have CPTSD, you already sort of are scared that the world is just waiting to hate you and hurt you. And um, I challenge that, you know, I try to be yeah. like chin up, like, smile at the world and it'll smile back. Like, I I really try, like, and I find that most people aren't shitty, you know, most people are cool, but there is this thing where you you try to grow and learn and be a better person, and then I look up information about CPTSD, and there's this dry, pruned-up expert who's talking in clinical terms about someone with CPTSD as this sort of, like, lightweight pariah and how, you know, this pitiful person who has to feel this or that, like, and when I'm listening, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, good information, cool, and then there's this underlying thing about you're pathetic, and at best, you're benign in your uh, neuroses, at worst, you've developed extra problems and are fucking totally terrible. So (laughs) there's like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like when you find out all this information, you're like, cool. Okay. Uh, there's no room for me. Like the best I could do is just try to function as normal as possible and just go home and cry alone for a little bit and try to shake it off. You well, know? That's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing about a lot of mental health stuff or disability in general is that a lot of people feel like there's no, that they don't really belong in the world. There's something about our society and our world, that the world that we live in, there's something about it that makes you feel like if you're not highly productive and contributing in like very specific ways, then you aren't a valuable person. And there's not really room for, you know, different abilities just because you can't do a traditional, you know, nine to five job that, and you're not like fully ambulatory and able-bodied doesn't mean that you also don't contribute in very meaningful, important ways. And I think that really just goes to living under capitalism living under a system that whose only real um, defining aspect is whether or not we're making profit so it's not really based on human needs or on what the earth needs or you know it's just a for-profit system and I think that's why mental health stuff is so common it's actually just 
people responding to a dysfunctional world, you know? Yeah. I mean, you were talking before about, um, your father and like his, his story and how understanding how that connects to a bigger picture is somewhat of um, a medicine to you. Not really like an excuse for behavior, but you're talking about how his life has like created a system where certain things got out of control. Yeah, it's definitely never to, I totally agree with what you said earlier. There should be a stigma against pedophiles and people who abuse other people. But um, I definitely was only referring to us feeling like we can't talk openly about something because we're going to bother somebody or it's too much information. That's the stigma that I was more so referring to that people think it's gross or think it's not something that we can talk openly about. But, but yeah, as far as my dad, I don't excuse his actions and, um, but I understand it in the context that he wasn't in his right mind and the experiences he had throughout life made it so that he was using drugs and alcohol, even though I think there are plenty of people who are pedophiles who aren't using drugs and alcohol. Or Uh, people who are using drugs and alcohol that are not abusing. Who are not, of course. Why am I laughing? That's very very funny. Okay. (laughs) No, no, that's a really good point. But I mean, my dad immigrated here when he was nine or 10, I think. And he, um, his family fled Laos and lived in refugee camps in Hong Kong. And when they came here, I think he experienced a lot of racism and really tried hard to assimilate um, and really just tried his best to hide anything that was other or different about him because he didn't want to stick out. And, but over time, I, I think the experiences that he had, he struggled with and I'm not sure what happened in his psychology or why exactly people become pedophiles. Um, And I'm definitely probably going to keep a, a distance from him for the rest of my life. So I don't think that understanding context means that you should, you know, not have very clear, firm boundaries with certain people who are really harmful, but it does totally understand how sick our world is and how the impacts of experiencing war and racism and other things like that, how they can make somebody just totally mentally unwell and do extremely harmful things when they're not in their right minds. And conversely, if we lived in a world where, you know, people didn't have to struggle so much and people weren't, you know, there weren't as many hate crimes and, or any hate crimes for that matter. Um, but they, you know, people had everything that they needed, um, to survive, which we have all those resources for everybody to be housed and to have more than enough calories. We have all the technology and resources for human beings everywhere to have a good quality of life where they can explore different dimensions of what it means to be human. But for us, it's just that, you know, that we don't live in a system that actually prioritizes human needs. 
I feel like then we have to figure out a way to prior how to show up and prioritize our own human needs, right? And and I mm-hmm. I also really feel that there are people who do horrible things to other people who have had great lives, you know, like that's really true. Yeah. And that's really true too. Yeah. So sorry. It's so it's it's really fucked up because you would think that um that it would be like a math equa- equation that could solve something like, I mean, just pedophilia or child abuse, like that, that could just be solved with, um, you know, creating different circumstances. But I, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of, I don't know, but I also believe in like the concept of, you know, you never know what goes on behind closed doors and people who, you know, have a a better economic position, but their parents are like mm, fucking narcissists or, you know, teach them to be creepy because of their neglect or whatever, you know, like I believe in that. I think that that happens, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, on the outside, it looks like some people have a lot better lives than they absolutely do in a material sense. You know, they may have, they may never struggle to eat or any, or, you know, they might not experience like really obvious, um, <clears throat> hardship, but, but also it's just also the world we live in. So say you had really great parents that were and and a whole community of people, but, but you still live in this really dysfunctional world where there's violence happening all around you. I mean, we must pick up on those things too, even if our immediate environment seems relatively healthy. Right. But um, I mean, also, there's another component where like something may go awry in your like whatever characteristics you have. But like there are certain traits or like mental health stuff that could get phased out over time if the environment um, kind of turned down the volume or turned up the volume on certain traits. So I'm talking specifically about epigenetics which i don't know that much about but i find what, it what really is it? interesting epigenetics epi genetics um so basically that like you you could have traits in your co in your dna that um there are some traits that are kind of harder to change right like your eye color or something like that but there are other traits that for example my mom was bipolar schizophrenic but maybe um, if my environment didn't have uh, certain experiences to turn the volume up on those traits, then it might not actually get expressed in my lifetime. Yeah. So, and then and then my code will start to change, and then over generations, something like that might even phase out if the environmental factors aren't there to bring it past a threshold and and have that um characteristic expressed but you know what i mean but like i I do understand this this concept and it is there's something kind of horrifying about it too because it's like you did have the the perfect environment to foster that type of thing you know i mean why not develop schizophrenia and bipolar disorder from the environment that you came from, you know? And I think that that to me is horrifying because it's like you're already, you as in me or anyone in this position already is afraid 
um, that there's something defective with them and that they have to do their best all the time and try harder all the time so that the world won't be like, you get out of here, you creep. Like, we're going to, like, send you to the gutters. We're going to send you to jail. We're going to get you out of here, and you're going to suffer more. And it's this other thing, like, that hanging above your head, like, some ominous, dark balloon filled with pig's blood, like, at any moment, if the fucking, if it goes to the levee, like, you're going to be even more crazy and more bad and, like, more rejected. Well, I didn't mean to alarm you. I just... (laughs) No, no, I mean, I... I see it as a hopeful thing thing because, like, I had abuse, but maybe I also had... Not maybe. I had experiences living with certain family members that created more room for me to play with my cousins or have some good childhood experiences. And I really credit, like my, one of my aunt and uncles, I really credit the times, the summers I spent with them as the reason why I'm as healthy as I am. Because I, even though I do struggle a lot with mental health stuff, I also feel like, wow, I'm a lot better off than some of my other siblings who I haven't met yet, but have talked to in social media, um, you know, a lot of them express having a lot more hardship and with like, you know, struggling with things like incarceration and addiction and domestic abuse and stuff like that. And I've, um, once I left my dad's house, I, I didn't, you know, I had some mild, not mildly, but I had some abusive relationships, but they weren't anything resembling what that was like with my dad. And now I know better. Um, so I probably won't put myself in that situation, you know, um, but, but yeah, things are better off for me. And maybe, maybe that won't actually get expressed to the degree that it did for my mom or her mom. Yeah, I I do see what you're saying. And I do think that even though there's all these environmental things that happen and like, I I do believe that human beings have free will. And I I do think that we're greater than the sum of all the parts. You know what I mean? And I think inside of you is this little angel that just, you know, wanted to, despite anything, not turn bitter you know, and to look for light and to find love and surround yourself with beauty and peace. And, you know, I think that that also is a choice of the heart. So Mm. I think that to me, that is all the more comforting than thinking about some little sad-eyed kid just being batted around, like, you know, by the paws of the gods of circumstance. And then it's like, thinking I, I I do agree that there it is all the ingredients that come through in our upbringing, but I do think that in your heart, if you have a desire to make things right, to love, to be a part of a better world, that you'll find it, you know, and I guess that's to me anything um that's interesting about the magical universe or psychology or healing um has to do with like looking for those little flecks of gold you know those little clues um or portals into understanding how to unlock that 
that maze, that invisible maze of neuroses that we're weaving around ourselves all the time and, and just mm-hmm. like figure out how to rise above. It's, there's, there is something sort of, um, transcendent just in the intention, you know? Yeah. I get a little, um, sometimes not sure about free will in general, you know, cause maybe somebody's life experiences make them sort of close their heart a little to protect themselves but it doesn't mean that they don't have that potential, but maybe the life experiences are so overwhelming or painful that they actually kind of have to close their heart a little. But I think maybe I lucked out too. I had some really good teachers that I sort of glommed onto and um, really helped keep me open to connection. You know, but I think that's that's beautiful, but I also think that you, you, you have to, you don't have to do anything, sorry. Like, I would like if you acknowledged that you made a choice to have a better life and to contribute um, with love to the world around you, you know? And I think that that no, I, I was a way. Yeah. I definitely acknowledge that, and I appreciate you saying that. I just want to be careful in general, like, not just because, like, sometimes people are, like, they appear from the outside like they're you know, hardened or apathetic or closed off. And I just want to acknowledge that the conditions that we live in under capitalism and the things that people experience kind of aren't conditions that really bring out qualities of openness and, um, you know, wanting. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, like, I feel like a lot of times when I see something like that, I could, I could like see through a, a like tough exterior, you know, to me, I'm like, I don't, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I don't even, I'm not very put off by people who are softies with a hard shell or whatever. Like I get it. Like, but I mean, there's also people who have had all, all the advantages and love and whatever. And they're just little brats. Like, and maybe they haven't had enough, like, of the proper temperance of good and bad together to understand compassion and, and all that, like some kind of after school special. But I mean, I think that when you're saying that you're coming from a space of deep compassion and not wanting to say that it's just because you're good or just because you're bad, that the world is what it's, what it is. Um, I think that when you're saying that, what I'm hearing is that you don't want to count anyone out, you know, or put yourself, outside of a space of humility where you're like, you know, beyond accountability. And I think that's beautiful. But I do think that that in itself is your own free will activated. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just think that people can change. So like, I mean, I think the likelihood that somebody who's like really horrible and callous and cold and greedy and whatever, you know what I mean? Like, like I've been a nanny for a lot of affluent families and, some of those kids are really just like um, prejudiced and homophobic and racist and the stuff they say and they don't, you you know, you try oh, to kids, have kids though, they're just kids. <laughs> <laughs> they're just kids. <laughs> no, but yeah, you try to have conversations with them and they really, um, on the surface, act like they don't care. And I don't know if that's just part of their socialization or, or maybe entitlement or whatever. But, but, you know, I think people can change. I just think it's harder to change under certain circumstances when, if you don't have any incentive to change. Um, 
Yeah, and I didn't want to be like essentialist about. I just didn't want to like essentialize about uh, people. And um, I did, you know, I did read a book called Willpower that was like super helpful. (laughs) Um, um, I guess it's kind of hypocritical or whatever. But I don't. um, Yeah, free will arguments sometimes feel like essential biological essentialist, like kind of. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, so um, we were talking about different things on the last, the last time we tried to record this and the audio got all messed up about things that you've learned and discovered to do to soothe yourself. Um, Let's say if you're having like a panic attack, which is a fairly common symptom of CPTSD. Um, So I know when I have a panic attack or whatever, you know, I would like to, like, do things before that happened to calm myself down, but then it becomes, like, this sort of physical earthquake, you know, this physical mental earthquake where it just rocks me, you know, and you were talking about the things that you've learned in the body and how to calm the body, and um, I would love it if you could share those things again for people listening now. Yeah, I guess if you're already in full overwhelm panic attack mode, maybe the best you can do is write it out. And hopefully if you have a support network available to you, hopefully you could reach out to people in your um, support group or support network. But But there's also sort of sometimes signs that you can pick up on that you're starting to um, get really overwhelmed or that you maybe need to slow down and take a few breaths or find ways to connect with other sensations. Like I tend to, if I'm feeling really overwhelmed, I really try to feel my feet on the ground when I'm walking or I try to feel my legs because that's an area of the body that tends to be really cut off from me. Um, so maybe even your legs are cut off. no my mind I can't feel my legs so basically a lot of times I can't feel my feet and my legs and I feel zero circulation and like no it's almost as if there's um they're cold or dead or there's no blood flow or oxygen in my muscles and legs but um so sometimes I'll, I'll like, I have these little massage balls and like wooden dowels and stuff like that that like I use to massage my calves and sort of just like wake them up in a way and give them sensory feedback for me to be like, okay, maybe now I can feel my legs if I put my hand on it and then I can sort of push my leg back into my hand or something like that, you know, because it's really hard to feel your body if you're, if you're not kind of practicing that Uh, I mean a lot of people probably think that that sounds weird because they maybe they've felt their bodies for a lot of their lives but but at the same time I think even people without CPTSD are probably really disassociated from their bodies because we're on screens all the time or we have jobs where we're supposed to stand or sit and like communicate or whatever and we're not really a lot of us aren't really connecting yeah, so if I'm feeling disoriented or if I'm sensing that I'm getting really uncomfortable and disoriented, I'll usually look around the room. I'll make sure I look at different things like the window, the door, so I have sort of like an exit route. Um, 
I'll try to, like I said, feel my feet on the ground, feel my, um, my sitting bones or my um, thighs on the chair, stuff like that to just remember like, okay, I'm on, I'm grounded. I'm on the planet. Um, and um, otherwise I'll just start spinning kind of out of control. And before I know it, it's not that it's too late, but that um, the best I can do is try to find a safe spot and um, maybe, you know, get comfortable and ride it out. Um, and I don't know if I'm making sense right now, but um, no, I mean, I get, I get that. Like, so I, I also don't want to assume that like sometimes people are so traumatized that they're not even in a position where feeling their bodies is even safe. I've experienced that with a friend that I was trying to help who was having a panic attack, but that was actually aggravating to them for me to suggest, can you feel, is there anything in your body that you can feel? And they were like, they couldn't feel anything and that, that scared them even more. So I also yeah. just want to say that it's not available to everybody. That's true. And also, um, you were mentioning before, like having people to connect with. And to yeah. me, that concept, even though I'm extremely social, if I'm um, launching a panic attack, that's the last thing I want to do. Because I feel like I don't know how to, I, I'm like losing communication qualities. You know, mm-hmm. if, if I'm having a panic attack, I'm not going to mm-hmm. be, I, it seems like it would just freak me out more to be like, help! And then somebody's like, how could I help you? What are you doing? Like, why are you shaking your hands weird? And I'm like, eh, I don't know. Like, I can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, I don't know oh how God. I, it steps up, because then it gives me an extra job of trying to explain what the fuck they're looking at or talking to, you know? Right, so. and you're already, yeah, you already have a lot on your plate just trying to manage what you're experiencing. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's also important that to recognize that it's not a one size fits all. So for one person taking a scalding hot bath might be for that's for me, that helps because it really like helps me drop down away from my mental activity and um, feeling like the heat. But yeah. for somebody else that might be actually, you know, not a good idea. In my I know. Mind. My bathroom is disgusting. I have a bunch of roommates. I would never want to take a bathroom there. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, I know that's yeah. not what you're trying to say, but. But so over time, you could maybe, if if something works one time to help soothe you, you know, like maybe, well, I don't know, herbal tea, or it, maybe you're, you're right. It doesn't help to try to call somebody because then you feel like you're having to kind of manage how they're feeling and yeah you know something that I did recently um was I was starting to have a panic attack uh which is just a general term for whatever the fuck is happening when I I guess it's a panic attack I'm freaking out my fear response what what it feels like to me is my fear responses are flooded and um my brain is split in two where there's the one part of me that's completely uh, conscious and rational that isn't in charge anymore. It's just, like, sitting on the sideline, like, okay, like, that's what you have to do right now, I guess. Like, why can't you just get up? Why can't you just relax, you know? Not that I'm sitting there, like, completely judging myself, but sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm like, what the fuck? Like, stop. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a part of me that's totally awake and observing it, and then there's the other part of me that's just, like, non non-verbal 
that's just like, like, no, you know, just like having a spaz out. And then my body seizes up, my emotions are like overwhelmed, but it's like all emotions, all negative emotions mostly. Um, and I feel like the only thing I could really do is like, I'll like shake my hands, which is soothing, but it probably looks insane because it is, I'm being insane. I'm not sane. I'm like losing it. That's not, that's not insane at all. That's actually what we were talking about. But it's also not the kind of thing that I want anyone to check out. You know what I mean? Like I want to be completely alone (laughs) when I'm like, "Ah!" like, cause I'm like dry heaving on the floor, freaked out. Part of me is looking at me on the floor, like, okay, like, just write it out, I guess. And then the other part of me is just like, like a conscious seizure or something. It's just like a weird thing. It makes sense. It makes sense to want to be alone while you're experiencing that. And, but it is also very normal for the human body to shake and to want to very almost violently shake and let the trauma um, travel and discharge throughout the body. That's like actual, actually completing the trauma response cycle. So if you're in a situation where you're experiencing a lot of violence, then, you know, your nervous system goes into overwhelm and all the hormones start moving and, and, um, you're like, your, your sympathetic nervous system gets really activated and you either go into fight or flight or freeze mode. Right. And so it's what happens when we were younger is we were told most of a lot of us, you're not allowed to cry. Don't cry. That's going to make things worse. You can't express how you feel. You just have to really like not be seen or heard. And so then you had to kind of chop. You had to cut off the part of the natural cycle that Mm. all animals experience. Right. So Shaking is actually a very normal way for the body to finish the trauma response cycle. Yeah. So that was, there couldn't, I mean, that's extremely normal animal response, but I completely understand not wanting to do that. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm, I, I live in my own society. I know what that looks like, you know? So I'm just like, <laughs> like, like crawl under a car or like, I'm just kidding. I've never, been in a situation where I had to crawl under a car to be alone to have a panic attack but that's what I would maybe do like I would rather be under I would rather be in a closed and caged space where I could be completely alone um theoretically I don't know I usually try that's usually what I do um but um you know in high school I had a geometry teacher who is he was in the military and he, in the middle of class one time, he started shaking his hands, kind of opening and closing them. And then he went and yep. sat down. Know that he, move. Very much not, <laughs> he was not in his body at all. He was completely, his eyes were glazed over. And then he started, he just threw up in a trash can. And then later he told us it was because of PTSD. And I had, I'd never heard of that. And Whoa. I didn't understand. I didn't even understand really what war was or, I mean, at that age, I probably should have, but I didn't, you know, it was very abstract and um, totally, but yeah, but that, but he did that in the middle of the class and he was very embarrassed by it later when he realized what happened. Um, And of course the students were immature and stupid, so they like made fun of him, but (laughs) yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I don't want to be made fun of by some teenagers, so I just try to like <laughs> that a safe But okay, so <laughs> a couple things like <laughs> you're saying it's an animal thing, and then I'm thinking like we were talking before about the animals, like polar bears or wherever, and you know whatever animal um, having a traumatic experience or having a fucking high intensity fear response experience them fighting or flighting and then mm-hmm. they go and they're safe and then they shiver it off so that's like the shake the shake off right mm-hmm. so like post-traumatic stress disorder is so much like delayed reaction syndrome where you're i'm not safe enough to shake it off i'm not safe enough to shake it off i have to like hold on for a lot longer and then when you are in this moment where it seems fairly fine there could be something that just reminds you that you have to shake it off still, which is what you would call a trigger, right? And then, right. Um, so when I'm when I'm hearing myself talk to you about this, um, I'm like, well, that sounds like a toddler, you know? Like when little kids are upset and they have a tantrum, they maybe know how to talk some words, but they also know that no, you know what I mean? They may not have really any authority over their own life, and they don't know how to regulate emotions, so. To me, it's like maybe that's some old, old shit from when I was a little tiny, little tiny. Um, that and then traumas also, yeah, no, that that makes sense. But also traumas um, tend to fragment you, and then your all these like resources are getting sent to survival things and verbal, like linear thought, and um, your verbal abilities kind of suffer from that too. Yeah. For sure, um, but and when you're having a trigger, um, it usually means that the trauma is coming to the surface because it's stored in the body. That's why in yoga classes, sometimes people will start crying, or if you go get a massage or get some type of body work like Reiki or something, sometimes emotions will come to the surface because somewhere in the body, the traumas are stored, and I don't really know like exactly how that works, but there must be some kind of like, I don't know. Um, mapping in the body, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that that's the kind of the magic of the trigger. It's like uh, there's an invisible net that you wouldn't necessarily think there was a connection to certain things, and then you realize that everything is so intensely connected. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, so one thing I was going to say earlier before was um, this idea of like reaching out to people, which I'm telling you is like very counterintuitive intuitive to me but um last time I almost had a panic attack which was only a couple days ago (laughs) um I was like I'm gonna call my dad and it was because I kept pulling cards in my tarot that were like okay you're gonna freak out call your dad and I was like um I don't know I don't really like to do that you know that's not really my bag but my dad has shown up as a safe person in my life my biological father um, a lot, like, especially in my adulthood, he's like really shown up as someone who cares about me and wants to be a supportive role. So I usually keep a distance from authority figures in my life or whatever. Like I'll like show them love, but I'm just like, I can't, you know, I need some space. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just called him and it was late. So he didn't answer, which was actually more comforting just to leave a voicemail because I knew that he would eventually listen to it. So it was like he was there with me, 
but I didn't have to be like, sorry, I woke you up and it's hard to explain, but, uh, you know, or like my dad's the kind of person mm-hmm. that would like ask a question like m- most people and I'd have to be like, um, I don't know. Like, and then, you know, that would have made me feel more intense or whatever, but I, I was able to just like be heard and say some things like I'm like about to have a panic attack and that calmed me down, you know, just, just to think mm-hmm. that I was being heard. Um, and then I think the time, the, the time before that, that I had a panic attack, um, I also wasn't alone. I had a friend staying with me for over a week in my space, which mm-hmm. is like, as someone with CPTSD, you you get why that would be in, like too much, right? Um, Very much. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's not personal. It's just like not I need I need space to not be interacting with a single human being over and over and constantly be observed all the time. Like I can't deal with that. Um, so she was here, and I was like trying to clean something up, and she was like taking a nap in my room, and. I was like, okay, I kind of just, like, really need to be alone, and I can't. (laughs) And then um, I was, like, starting to feel overwhelmed, and then I was trying not to make any noise, which just, like, snowballed into me having, like, a really intense panic attack on the floor, and then she, like, woke up (laughs) and was like, are you okay? Like, what do you need? Should I leave? And then I was just, like, I couldn't really talk. I was just, like, sobbing, and... um. I decided instead of, like, feeling, like, freaked out about the this circumstance of somebody being so close to me and in close proximity, that she was my friend and that she would understand me. Or, and I just, like, accepted that she could have the ability to accept me. And I just, like, got next to her and, like, held her. And she, like, held me back and, like, just sort of soothed me. Like, she, like, held me like I was, like, a little kid. Which is, which is like, I don't know, like, depending on the circumstance, fairly socially awkward if you don't really, if you don't have intimacy with the, with the other person, but she actually, like, helped me calm down, and it was, like, kind of a unique experience, because usually if I'm having, like, that intensity of a panic attack, I'm alone, and I just, like, wait until, like, my body's exhausted, basically, but having somebody there and, like, comforting me and, like, patting me on the back and stuff, like, was actually very um vulnerable of an experience but it was very soothing yeah i mean traumas don't your trauma doesn't really give you the evidence to think that that's how another person's going to react when you're having such a strong you know a panic attack like that but the fact that she was able to soothe you kind of just even if she's never experienced anything similar kind of just speaks to how humans, you know, how we can relate to each other, even if we don't have the exact same experiences, but just like that your experience isn't 100% alien to somebody else, you know, and we are connected with each other, and there's a reason why you're friends. No, totally, and I mean, I I warned her before she stayed with me, I'm like, I have CPTSD, so I have, like, intense like, if you spend enough time with me, I mean, I'm mostly fine, but, like, if you spend enough time with me, you realize that sometimes I clearly have, like, a fucking nervous disorder, you know? Mm-hmm. So, which is scary, because it's, like, I don't, 
want to be an alienated person by it. But again, like I was saying before, I think that it's important to show up other examples, other stories, um, other individuals who are being the voice of these things instead of just like some pruny therapist. It's like, this is a very intense experience for this pathetic creature that has PTSD or CPTSD. You know what I mean? I think it's like, um, been really scary for me for a long time to not express these things. But I think it's also, um, a part of who I am as a, as a creature and as, um, a healer and as, um, someone who has deeper vision or stronger insight or, um, the ability to heal other people through dark spaces. If it wasn't for these really intense experiences, I don't think I would have those skills or interests, you know? No, you're highly sensitive. Whenever I reach out to you, even if we, if you don't know the context of what I'm feeling, it's all, I really do feel like you can sense what is going on. And then you'll always say something to completely help me shift my perspective and, you know, be able to kind of zoom out and not be so caught up in the moment or in like the spinning, the mind spinning or um, the trauma response. Yeah, you're definitely extremely sensitive. Well, thank you. I never thought that would be something I would get compliments around. (laughs) Oh, I I know that I'm not. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, when you're, like, growing up as, like, the sensitive kid, it's, like, not fun or cool. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, we grow into our strengths and our weaknesses give us space to advance or, like, know more about a thing. And um, it is, to me, I've decided to to feel that it's a shining path instead of, a damnation that I have to endure, you know? Mm-hmm. Aw. I love you. Thank you so much for <laughs> I sharing, love you too. sharing yourself with the world. <laughs> Thank you, too. Thanks for talking with me about this. It, it helps a lot to reflect and talk with somebody else about it. Yeah, and and I think, like, for anyone listening, I I hope that um, we've been comforting. And um, if you want to learn more about CPTSD, there's tons of um, information available. I mean, one thing that is fun is just looking up different YouTube videos about different information. There's so much information. Um, You know, therapy can be really recommended, but also just know that – you can find your own way through it and um, find support around you in whatever way you get to build your own adventure around it. And it could be a path of enlightenment and empowerment and turning um, your own discoveries through that path into medicines for others. And I believe in you and I don't think that you're just a fucked up mutant. And I think that you can make anything happen. So sending love to everyone listening. Yep, I completely agree with everything you said, Elise. Signing off. (laughs) Bye. Bye.